and welcome to Security Horizons. My name's Jeremy Walker. Thank you for staying with us from our two-month break from our pilot podcast. We have gone through what went wrong, what went right, and what we needed to improve since last time. And the main takeaway was doing it live on Twitch just wasn't conducive to a thought-out plan in what we were talking about and a bit too many stumbles around the block. So we decided let's just do it as a consistent weekly pre-recorded traditional podcast and that's what we're doing now so thank you for sticking with us again and we'll just get right on to it so today we'll be looking at multiple topics the first one is enro chat and the implications of the uk deciding messages can be used in court of law and the effect that has on encrypted messaging We'll be looking at the Alexei Navalny situation in Russia and responding to listeners' questions regarding that, as well as an overall timeline. We will also be looking at the coup d'etat happening in Myanmar and the imprisonment of the government over there. Dubai Ports World, or DP World, have also announced their expansion in Africa with a new port in Senegal. We'll be looking at that situation in regards to the Emirates' expansion of political power in the region. And lastly, we'll be looking at the imprisonment of Asadollah Asadi. I apologise in advance for any pronouncements I'm going to get wrong, but we'll be looking at the imprisonment of this man in regards to a attempted terrorist attack against Iranian opposition in Paris. First up today is Enro Chat. This stems back all the way to April 2020, which feels like seven years ago. This is when Operation Emma, which was a joint investigation team operation with agencies from the Netherlands, France and the United Kingdom, getting into this system called EnroChat, which which the National Crime Agency says was used by criminals to trade weapons as well as drugs. Since they managed to get into the messaging service, more than 800 arrests have been made all over Europe, and the interception recently has been deemed legal in the UK criminal system. The only background we got from the law enforcement agencies in how they got into the system was state-of-the-art cyber technology. So, when I say hacked into the system, I say that only because we have no other description of how it happened so i can't go into any in-depth description or anything like that so i am sorry ahead of time however the key thing about this is the basis of legality in the united kingdom as boring as it sounds this may have ramifications for the use of devices such as signal whatsapp telegram all these end-to-end encrypted messaging services that could impact everyone The reason this was brought up in the Court of Appeals in the first place is that, and I quote, there are a significant number of cases pending in England and Wales derived from EnroChat material. For this reason, it is important that legal admissibility issues, in this case, should be determined in a judgment of this court, which can now be published. So the key to this is that the defence had to prove that the material, in this case the messages, were intercepted material which is what people may regard as phone hacking, which is intercepting in the middle of transmission between device to device, which is still illegal under the Investigatory Powers Act in 2016. If it's intercepted in transmission, aka phone taps, then it's inadmissible in court and cannot be used. However, 
the difference in this case is that the Enroe chat messages were deemed to have been recovered in storage on the phones. So although the messages were captured remotely, it was done by, and I quote, interrogating the RAM on the phone. So that means that it was still unencrypted on the device, not within transmissible definition by the court of law in the United Kingdom. So it had not been sent to the servers in Roubaix via the phone. So the judges in England likened it to the sending of a letter with EnroChat. They said a letter requires the message to be written, put in an envelope, have a stamp attached to it, and to be placed in a postbox. However, only the last act involves the letter being transmitted by system. So any stage up to the sending to the server of the message in England, especially when it comes to EnroChat at least, will be deemed to have been captured on the device, even in unencrypted within RAM, no matter where it is, unless it's being captured en route to the servers to the next device it can be used as long as it's on the device. This is where it gets interesting. Does that mean that if they capture unencrypted messages on Signal, WhatsApp, they can use what they want? It's a very interesting precedent and definitely something to keep an eye on. And it should be noted that experts in these cases were making arguments against the chats being used because of technical differences in the interpolation with the RAM, how the messages are constructed. However, these were rejected by the judges because they were going against for the spirit of the law or something on that level and that they were going above their station in saying that because of these technical differences, it shouldn't be admissible in court. So keep an eye on that. No doubt that these are worthy cases, but it could have huge implications for cybersecurity of people's personal encrypted or believed to be encrypted data in the future. Our second subject today is the story of Alexei Navalny. I'm sure everyone's heard of this by now. If you haven't, I don't know where you've been. However, I've received questions from our Discord users about this. So I thought I haven't been doing this podcast for a past couple of months. So I'll just do a quick rundown of a history of the situation. What's going on, uh, the implications of it. So we'll just get it all out here now. So the timeline is August 20th of 2020. Navalny is hospitalized in Omsk in Siberia after falling ill and consciousness while on a flight out of Siberia. This would later be revealed to be by Novichok, administered by Russian secret agents in his underpants of all places. How about that? Two days later, on the 22nd of August, he's airlifted to hospital in Germany, in Berlin. The Russian medical team in his first hospital had refused the move and they had conducted blood tests that revealed no blood poisoning, nothing untoward whatsoever. However, in Germany, on the 2nd of September, it came out that there was unequivocal proof, quote, that he was poisoned with a Novichok nerve agents, which is from the Soviet era, which is in line with Putin. 
Merkel said Navalny is a victim of attempted murder. There are serious questions only the Russian government can answer. And there are international calls for investigation into the situation. This is rejected by the Kremlin. They say he could have deteriorated because of different things, fatigue, stress, like every excuse under the sun. So this is all happening within the span of a couple of weeks here. So now we're up to the seventh where Navalny is finally brought out of a coma he was placed under. Following this, between September 11th and 13th, Navalny allies gain in Russian elections. So they gain seats. So there's obviously Kremlin worry at this rise in Russian anger at the establishment. And throughout all this process, there's discharges, there's lab results that keep on confirming Novichok is there. Navalny's still in Germany at this point. He accuses Putin of being behind the poisoning. And on the 21st of December 2020, there was the release by Navalny himself of a recording where he pretended to be a higher up in the Russian secret service, where he tricks an FSB agent to the confession that he tried to kill him by putting poison in the underpants. Obviously, this is accused as a fake, that there is no basis of truth by the Russians, as he would presume that they would. And I've put the link for that video that you should definitely listen to. It's about a 50-minute video of Navalny talking to this FSB agent who was seriously ill at the time so he did not know what was going on he just heard a voice that said i'm this person from this agency i'm writing a report i need your input so put the link in the podcast notes check it out highly advise it on the 28th of december russia's prison service gives navalny a last minute ultimatum because of some trumped up oh you need to report in for parole because of the 2014 charge of some sort obviously he cannot physically get to that location at that time he's still ill he's still recovering however 13th of january 2021 so last month he decides while posting a video on instagram that he intends to return home he i presume can't be seen to be the leader of the opposition in exile through fear of putin so he decides to return home and face up to his plotters essentially and that results in a 17th of january flight from germany to russia where he is immediately detained by the russian prison service once he gets on the ground like at the airport he is detained so following day he's put into detention for 30 days for his violation of his suspended jail sentence at a very quickly arranged trial while he tells his supporters to take to the streets don't be scared of Putin thank you to Al Jazeera for that comprehensive timeline as well so thank you for that So the question I received in our Discord, which there is a link in the podcast description as well, so you can join us in discussion of all these topics as well as posing certain topics and questions for this podcast. What are the consequences in Russia as well as internationally, so other governments, to the poison of Navalny? So thank you SpyFox for that question. So obviously it drew condemnation from the eu from everyone basically how can you put into prison this political opponent who was so happened to be poisoned by this soviet era chemical weapon that that just so happened to benefit putin so what did happen was that the uk the united kingdom announced it will 
enforce asset freezes and travel bans for those responsible for the poisoning. So that was multiple members of the defense and security team, as well as the State Scientific Research Institute for Organic Chemistry and Technology, which was also followed up by Boris Johnson denouncing it as an outrageous act and demanding explanations as well as others from Europe, the French Minister of Europe and Foreign Affairs, stressing it was essential and urgent for the Russian authorities to establish without the delay. The circumstances in which the use of a nerve agent against Mr. Navalny was even possible, and other stronger words such as describing the attack as despicable and cowardly from the EU Commission President. The general reaction was shock, horror, here's some strong-handed words. However... Apart from more sanctions against Russia as a whole, so if you can't identify the perpetrators, you can then think about imposing sanctions against Russia as a nation instead. That would hurt them a bit more. But again, it's same old, same old reaction. There's not much you can do. The biggest reaction I potentially heard about was Merkel talking about possible reconsiderations of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is the new pipeline being built in the Baltic area between Russia and Germany that will bypass the oil pipelines already going through Poland, Ukraine, which Ukraine is heavily against. They say it's only targeting them. It's the only reason it's being built is to undermine Ukraine. But obviously Nord Stream 2 is almost completed anyway. So to say we're not using it would be just unfeasible to a point. There is only so much you can do while it's almost over 90% complete. However, there were some very interesting comments from the German government in opposition to this potential fracture of a Nord Stream 2 deal. Steinmeier, the German president, whose post is pretty much ceremonial at this point, but is still obviously a big voice to be saying this kind of statement. He argued that Germany was obliged to maintain cordial relations because of millions of people from the Soviet Union who had died during World War II, which was... An interesting point to bring up at this stage of the situation. And obviously Ukraine responding to this with, and I quote, astonishment and indignation with dubious historical arguments and felt like it was an attack on Ukraine. So very interesting comments from the German president right there. However, not an indication of actual policy thought. So that's pretty much it for the consequences in Russia as well as internationally. There's not much you can do when it comes to this, other than what we've seen. The reactions to the Salisbury poisoning in the United Kingdom, another Russian poisoning on foreign land, let alone their own land, brought around about the same amount of outcry. However, we are seeing a bit more unrest in Russia with the protests. That might lead to something, however, as of yet, Putin might be feeling a bit more uncomfy in his seat. Will his friends keeping him in power still be happy with him with this reaction? We will see, but as of yet, I've yet to be proved that any other reaction will be forthcoming. Johnny Harris, however, I will link this in the description as well, did a very good YouTube video describing everything that's gone on. So if you want a more of a visual representation and look into the russian reaction on the ground i would suggest you go watch that video to get a comprehensive view of the situation 
Now for the rest of the news. In Myanmar, there was the Gutatat against Anyan Suki and the government there by the military. A bit of background, Anyan Suki, as a lot of people will know, has been in and out of house arrest since around 1995 up until 2012, where she won her first public office, winning a by-election seat. She became leader of the opposition then and her party secured 43 out of 45 consensus seats in 2012. Following that in 2015, she won the first open general election where her party via NLD won by a huge margin of victory securing both of their houses in Myanmar. They formed government for a first time. However, she took the role of state councillor as some other rules meant she couldn't take the position of prime minister due to the British nationality of her husband and sons. Her reign has been rocky since then. The crackdown against the Muslim population, the minority population in that country, has been a source of huge unrest in the international scene, which has been described as, and I quote, genocidal intent, which obviously they would deny. Anyan Suki would later have to go to The Hague and defend her country against genocide charges. So to say it was rocky, bit of an understatement right there. However, in 2020, she would again lead her party to a majority in the general election, However, the military have disputed this despite claims of voter fraud being rejected by the Electoral Commission in the country and now they've staged a coup to take control. They've declared a one-year emergency citing government inaction against voter fraud, which seems to be a trend in 2020 going into 2021. People claiming voter fraud in elections that were free and fair by the sounds of it. Recent developments there have been police filing charges against Miss Suki for allegedly importing communication equipment, as well as the UN's top human rights body calling a urgent session on the 12th of February, so the Friday I'm recording this podcast, for arbitrarily detaining both government officials and civilians. And there has also been the objection of a potential cybersecurity bill going into force being pushed by the new military government in Myanmar. Obviously, accusations of reducing people's internet freedoms rather than for protection of their privacy. Next, we have Dupai Port World or DP World. This is in relation to Emirati expansion in Africa. So DP World, the fourth largest port operator in the world, has invested an initial 837 million US dollars in Senegal for a new deep sea port, along with the development of a special economic zone, as well as a potential further 290 million US dollar investment. This goes along with their already gained contracts to build ports and logistic areas across Africa, including Somaliland, Algeria, Mozambique and others. Dubai Port World is state-owned by the United Arab Emirates and it goes along with that countries and Emirati in general increase in influence among Africa. So this sort of economic expansion is also political expansion. 
so this port also gives them access to areas such as the Atlantic, so going to South and North America, along with their building of several military bases in the Horn of Africa in the East, just increasing their ability to project power in the region. This also goes along with reporters, UAE involvement with the Libyan civil war, with the Libyan National Army, which is up against the UN-backed government. There were reports that they provided advanced weaponry, such as a Panzer S1 air defense system, which by itself costs $13 million. It is highly unlikely that the LNA have enough money to buy just one of those, let alone the general support that they're gaining. So it is highly likely that the UAE are supporting them in Libya, which goes along with their general political advancement. And lastly, but by no means least, is the jailing of Asadollah Asadi. As I said at the start of the podcast, I'm sorry for any pronouncements I get wrong. Please, in the comments, let me know. Anyway, the jailing of Asadollah Asadi. He was a Vienna-based, and that will be crucial in a minute, with the so-called Department 312 of Iran's intelligence service. He was convicted and jailed for the planned bombing of a MEK rally. This is a Marxist Islamist political movement that has been exiled from Iran. They were once listed as a terrorist organization by the United States for numerous reasons, among them killing of US personnel in Iran during the 1970s and their ties to the former Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. They were taken off the State Department's list of terrorist sponsors in 2012 due to a rejection of violence. In 2011, there were reports of 5,000 to 10,000 members of the MEK. Now, the attack planned in Belgium, because he was uh, jailed by the Belgium authorities, was attended by Rudy Giuliani, as I'm sure we all know who he is by now, and attended also by... British Conservative MPs as well as one Labour and 30 British officials. The crowd at the event in 2018 was made up half of Iranians and half of reportedly bored-looking Poles, Czechs, Slovakians, Germans and Syrians who responded to a Facebook invite which said that they would provide travel and accommodation to Paris along with food for only 25 euros and at the time certain people at the event were interviewed who said we saw the deal on facebook and we agreed to come on a holiday (laughs) according to a syrian mother i have never seen paris i don't know anything about the mek so i think that's all you have to know about the validity of the mek at this point in time So the actual plot involved Asadi, the Vienna-based intelligence officer with Iran who had diplomatic cover in that country, along with three other accomplices who had Iranian-Belgium dual citizenship. Iran don't really recognise dual citizenship, but it's interesting that they used this to their advantage at this point in time. That's an aside, that's just my input. According to the court, Asadi apparently smuggled explosives on a commercial flight to Austria, However, handed the bombs 
over to his accomplices at a meeting in a pizza hut in Luxembourg two days before the arrests were made. The reason he didn't have diplomatic immunity despite being posted with the Vienna embassy for Iran was that he was A, on holiday at the time and outside his designated country. So because he was based at the Vienna embassy, he was making these attempts in Luxembourg and Belgium, arrested in Germany. So that's three out of the four countries that he could be arrested in. So this sounds like a pretty big cock up, for lack of a better word, on the Iranian intelligence. And that's it for this week. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. Obviously, we're back to it. However, any recommendations, suggestions, put them in the comments. I will link the Discord as well for you to join. The link will be in the description, as I said earlier. Please join that. We can have a discussion any time of the week. You can suggest topics, questions up until Wednesday of the recording, because I record this normally on a Thursday. So join the Discord. You can ask questions, get them on the podcast. And you can also follow me on Twitter at jwalkermedia. Come and have a chat and... I look forward to seeing you there. So have a good week and I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a good one.